Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Collider Ladies Night. I am beyond thrilled to welcome Mackenzie Davis to the show to talk about her new series, Station Eleven, which is excellent and you are phenomenal in it. But I love so much of your work and we're going to get to so much of it today. Thanks, Perry. Before we even get to a single film, though, I didn't warn you about this. What we start the show with is the dice tower behind me. Mm. I've got eight random questions in front of me. I roll the die three times and whatever I land on, that's where we start at least. Oh my God, I love games. Please go. Oh, I got you well covered in that department. All right, we're starting with a number seven, which is movie and TV skills. If you could learn a new skill or about a different profession through a role, what would you choose? <laughs> I remember there was a time in, well, and I was shooting The Halt and Catch Fire where I really wanted to go to the body farm, which is like a forensic. Um, uh like crime scene i think it's was some sort of forensic investigator farm where they just like let human remains rot in different areas like underground in a pool in a trunk so that when you like discover the bodies you can see what like what happens to a body that's held in, they, they you can date it basically it's like carbon dating for bodies um and i really wanted to go there and i, I like had one of the producers offer to like write me a letter saying that i needed to go for work but it felt like kind of disrespectful anyways i'd like to do that um i think it would be really interesting and what was the other part of the question that's a job oh one or the other either a new skill or a profession I think I'd love somebody to just force me to finally become fluent in French instead of pretending when I drink, you know? I mean, pretending when you drink is a million steps further than I got. I tried real hard at French and Hebrew, spent many, many years studying and just retained absolutely nothing. Yeah, I, I retained some, but so little that it's like you can't really piece it together in any satisfying way. So that would be great. All right. I, I'm still impressed. Roll number two here. All right, we're going to a number 
four. Four is binge watch. What is the most recent TV show that you have binge watched? Uh, I I binge watched. Oh, this is sort of too much, maybe. But um, uh, selling Sunset season four fast, and then I was like, where did all this start again? So I rewatched seasons one through three to just be like, I just really want to know where all of these things happen. I think a lot of it happened off screen, so I didn't get a lot of answers. But it is interesting watching people from like year one of a reality show to year four of a reality show and how um, the many ways in which they change. I have never seen it. I guess maybe I could give it a shot. And No, it's not, it's not good. <laughs> it's not that it's good. It just is there. And that's nice. Sometimes you need content that's just there. Yeah. Last roll for you now. Going with a number three to close this out. It is never again. What is something that you did for a role that now makes you say, I'm really glad I did that, but never again. Um, I think Terminator, like, I, I don't know, never again. I just ate so much meat, like five times a day, unseasoned. Uh, like thinking about how much meat I consumed, like really disgusts me. And I love meat, just kind of. Yeah, uh, which I know is not really in vogue right now, but um, enjoy, enjoy flesh. Um, but to, yeah, I really found consuming it as like the primary meal and the like primary source of nutrition was pretty gross. I, I'm impressed that you made it through that. When I think about like getting fitter and healthier, and then I think about the reality of what it takes to do that, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I need my sandwiches, my beers. It's not like supplements and smoothies. It's like just unseasoned chicken. Absurd <laughs> amount of unseasoned lean protein. Yeah. Let's, I guess, get into the meat of it now, pun intended. I always like starting with this question just so I can know the first steps. What is the the movie, the performance, personal experience, you name it, that first made you say, I have to be an actor? Uh, it wasn't really like that for me. I, I just like kind of was always performing and acting growing up. And then, you know, that starts out in a really annoying way, I think, for your family. And then you, you know, are in like acting clubs and that's really fun because it's a club and all the kids are playing and then you get to be in plays after school and that's fun because there's pizza and then you find a different way into it and I don't know it wasn't like I saw someone do it and, and wanted to do it I just always wanted to do it but I know like there are you know like Laura Dern in Wild at Heart I still think about all the time is like wow how many people she embodied in that one movie and how much like sex and uh love and like pride and loyalty like i don't know she's just such a complex amazing unusual character um i love that movie and i love that performance so much i haven't thought about that movie in forever i need a rewatch so then the next step after that when when did it become something you wanted to commit to as a career actually backtrack first because of school did you study acting when you went to college or did that first start at Neighborhood Playhouse? Yeah, that started at Neighborhood Playhouse. Um, uh, I, I did English Lit at, at college and then at university. And, um, and then studied it full time when I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse. But I was always like, it's, it, it, 
it's just always been a part of my life. Like it was always an extracurricular thing, but like the thing I like to do more than anything else, I just didn't make that sort of mental switch of it being a career. Even though I always thought I was heading in that direction, it seemed like that happened after this and after this and after this. And, and then I reached the point where it had to start happening. And then that's when it, that's when I did it full time. But until then it was like still a big part of my life, just not, um, I wasn't studying it and I wasn't doing it professionally. But boy, did I like it. <laughs> For the studying part, why why did you choose Neighborhood Playhouse? Was it the particular technique that they leaned into? Kind of. I was, I was in this Meisner class in Montreal where I was going to university and um, with this really amazing teacher called Jacqueline McClintock who went to the Neighborhood Playhouse. And, you know, anybody who's been to an acting class knows that they are little cults. And, um, and this one was no exception, but with a very benevolent sort of amazing leader. And, uh, and yeah, she just spoke so highly of it. And also, like, not for nothing... I'm like a Canadian. I needed a work visa to work in the States. I got into the neighborhood playhouse. <laughs> I like love the Meisner technique, had a great time at the school, but um, there are, are practicalities as well to that decision that one has to make. Very, very understandable. So what happens after you leave the, the studying environment and you want to build a career? Is it basically the traditional audition grind until something hits? Kind of. I was kind of aimless because I graduated from the neighborhood playhouse and didn't have an agent. I had somebody who would like sometimes send me auditions, but not really. And so I was just trying to do like what you'd see in montages in the movies, like looking at the back of magazines and going on Craigslist for student films. And I just didn't know how to navigate anything. And some of the advice I'd been given was a bit dodgy, um, like sending like postcards with your face on it to different casting agents announcing your arrival in the city that just felt sort of, I just, I wasn't sure exactly how you had to do it. And then I got really lucky in one of the like two auditions I was sent out on by this, um, this person who was sometimes sending me out on things was for this movie called breathe in. Um, that was the first thing I was cast in and, uh, and was just like, I kind of, I got really lucky. I kind of got to jump forward a few steps uh, in a time where I was like very, very, very lost about how one moves forward at all. So first impressions are everything. So what was it like making Breathe In at the very beginning of your career, especially because Drake has a, a really unique way of making his movies. So I imagine it would set certain expectations for future films that other directors can't quite match in the same way. Yeah, I mean, definitely. His films are super intimate and so collaborative and you work without a script, which like for me, I'd gone to a school that prioritized improvisational, like listening and thinking and reacting and acting. Um, so I wasn't really prepared to do anything technical and couldn't, but I could like go into a room and be, you know, know the parameters of a story and then uh, sort of live within those parameters. Thank God that they're this like very specific, not even skill, but like thing <laughs> had a place to be applied um, on the perfect movie. So uh, I did know at the time, like, this isn't how movies are made. <laughs> like you just got to be the luckiest person to have the one thing you know how to do right out of school 
be the one way that this person's making a movie. So I kind of, yeah, knew how lucky it was at the time. So you get that gig without uh, an agent and a manager. Did that film change the team that was around you and give you access to those resources that would keep those auditions coming? Yeah, I, 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 after I didn't have an agent, didn't have a manager. And then I went to LA after that movie to like take meetings. Sounded really cool at the time. And I did take some meetings and, uh, and then signed with my agents who I'm still with the same agency today and, uh, and got a manager and, um, and yeah. And then I was like auditioning for real things. It was such a swift sort of I mean, it was so cool at that time because I went from like not even knowing how to get an audition for anything that wasn't like a non-union student film to then auditioning and not being considered for, but like auditioning for real movies. I just felt so lucky to even be auditioning for real things. I was like just sort of tickled for a long time. Like, oh my God, like I don't even need to get it. It's just so fucking cool that I get to like read a real script and audition for a real thing because I could not figure that out before. I love hearing about longstanding actor-agent relationships and we never really get to talk about them. So what was it about your agency that you got right at the beginning that that felt right to you? And I guess how have they supported you in uh, in all your projects over the years that makes you feel like, like there's some, this is a group of people that I can go the distance with and grow the way that I want with? Yeah, I think it's um, I, it's really special. I mean, at the time, it was weirdly pragmatic because you, I, there's a sort of energy of competition of like signing a new person, I guess. And I was really sensitive to that, that nobody, because I just shot this movie, had any idea what my work looked like. And the only people that did were the agents at the agency that I was signing with because they represented the director. So there was, I, they were kind of the only people I could believe where I was like, all right, well, at least you've seen something. Everything else feels like true or not. And the very nice people, like they don't know what I like or how I act. So they couldn't possibly actually like me. I'm just something that it's this thing that was cast in this cool director's movie. Um, so yeah, it was like kind of, pragmatic in that way. And then I just settled with a really lovely team of people that understood who I was and never tried to push me into things. I mean, the sort of horror stories or even just like kind of shitty stories that you hear about, especially young actors being pushed into projects that they don't want or in meetings with people that they don't want or not being like listened to or respected or sort of working with people, especially when that power dynamic is so stark where you're just like, why are you even talking to me? I've never made you money. And I'm like, sort of, you know, you feel very deferent to the sort of agent relationship when you first start out, but they always treated me like, smart and and like an equal and they were really interested in what I wanted to do and how I wanted to be and I I love that and they that's true to this day they've really sort of respected my um whole approach with that in mind very big broad question what would you say is I guess the film that most well represented what you wanted to bring to 
your career, your craft into the world, like a, like a role in a film that felt like, yes, this is the side of me that I want this industry and I want audiences to see the most at least. I don't know. Cause there's not just like one thing. Cause when you've done it, then you're like, well, I want to show a different side. And like, I want someone to think that I could be this other thing. And so that's kind of part of the, the excitement is that, that you, you keep trying to find sides of yourself that you haven't shown or done before that might interest you and that like hopefully you can <laughs> access and and show um but i think i was speaking about uh always shine this movie that i made with my friend sophia and that we both like she she's an actress as well and we, we both feel like we're always chasing that feeling of what it's like to to act and make stuff before there's money involved um because like as soon the more expensive something gets and when it becomes your career the less it feels like it did when you fell in love with it not always but like you really have to fight for it to to resemble the part where you're like we have all the time in the world let's just like figure out what this is about and what's important is that we like connect and i don't know i, I yeah, I always feel like a sort of dorky, but it's being in acting classes because they're cults when you're younger are like, it's so fun and secret and cool. And uh, I don't know, you're always, you think that that's what being a professional actor is. And for many reasons, it shouldn't be. Um, but there's still a sort of high of feeling like you're being pushed and exploring in a way that um, requires a lot of time and space to do. I've lost the sort of grammar of that sentence. But anyways, uh, I think that movie always shine most closely resembled the way I like to make things, which is like small group of people. Everybody's equally invested. It's there's no like director, actor hierarchy. And then other, you know, it's like everybody is invested in this thing that we're all making and we're all equal parties. And there's lots of time to explore and to like, play with the ideas and it's as much fun to do it as it is to talk about why we're doing it or what, what the, these things make us think about. Um, it's like camp. It's just was so fun. So I, I love that sort of thing. That's both like kind of intellectually and emotionally. Uh, I'm so glad you brought up that film. I will always prioritize Sophia and Amy Simons's work because I made a short and the first film festival I ever got into with a little short was in a program with one that she directed called Coffee and Pie. And it's just the two of them sitting at a table having a conversation. But I was so excited that I went to every single screening of our program. So I think I saw that short like six or seven times by the end of the That's so cool. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And ever, ever since, both of them, I always see everything they do. Yeah. And they're both really great cool, innovative people. Yeah. Real one of a kind voices, which is another exactly. reason why I love them both so much. So jumping from what you just described to something like The Martian, because you had been on a whole bunch of sets before then, but, you know, being on one with a hundred million dollar plus price tag directed by Ridley Scott is a pretty big leap there. So I don't know, what would you say surprised you the most about what it means to make a movie on that scale with, you know, people who are essentially industry icons. 
Um, I think what surprised me, cause I'm like a fan and nervous and never know how I'm going to like fit in, in those environments was how unbelievably collaborative and intimate it still was. Um, I mean, I guess I'm less surprised by that stuff now, but you know, you, you always expect that it's a different rarefied world. The one that you look at and idolize growing up that when you step into that world, like it's like going through, um, what are those like portals you'd walk through uh, in like a, a sci-fi movie where it's like, but you sort of change in some way when you pass I feel like through it's the it. wrong word. Now I'm thinking like a wormhole. It's not, it's like, it would be material of Alex Mack, but you don't go liquid, but you sort of like pass through a thing. Um, anyways, maybe not the point of the story. Uh, yeah. I just, I mean, I thought Ridley Scott was like so fun and interested in what everybody thought and gave the actors so much license to do what they felt was right and really like empowered us and me to enjoy the thing that we were making. I thought he really did. I mean, in relationship to Sophia's movie, like really did take time and give us time, but also had the sort of expertise of having done it for 40 years where he's not, overshooting or unsure of what we're doing um and that felt so safe and cool to be like oh i'm in the hands of somebody who knows exactly what they're making and we're not doing more than he needs but we'll do as much as i need as well which is was yeah it was really exciting i love being in that movie it sounds like an ideal balance there you know, I have to talk about Halt and Catch Fire. That was, I think that was the first thing I had ever seen you in. And I grew so obsessed with that show. How, how was it making the switch to filming in the series format? What, what's something you really appreciated about the way a television show was made that maybe you couldn't get on a film set? Well, it was really early. It was like, I, I'd done maybe like two or three movies by the time I got cast in it. So I, it was really fresh in my career. And I feel like it was going to like university for acting. Like I was so in awe of the people that I worked with. I learned so much from them. I was just like absorbing all of their behavior and their, their work ethic and the way they approach things. And I was working with great actors and people who um, they were great people to be learning that stuff from and then carving out how, what my way into this was. So it was just like, I, I look back on it now and I'm like, wow, I was so lucky to be on that show and, and to work with showrunners like Chris and Chris, the, the Chris's who, um, uh, again, I mean, I think all these things are like people who really early on in my career treated me with like, validity and interest and like I was as much a part of the thing as you know Lee Pace was you know like that my my point of view and opinion mattered and my notes or the things that didn't feel right to me mattered just as much and and I yeah I was just treated like such an equal on that show and it was so lucky for me um but what's different about it from movies? I don't know. I've, I've said this before, and it, but it really is my favorite thing is there's like a little cheat with TV, especially on a series like Halt, where for four years, I like experienced things through Cameron 
and then and and her relationship to joe and to gordon and to donna and to boz and then in season three some conversation happens with one of them and i'm having like real memories of a hurt or a love that i experienced in real time as cameron like two years ago that are now sort of woven into my nervous system as my memories where they're i don't have to imagine it they're just like part of this life that i've lived which uh is like a cool cheat really makes it easier to do my job and um and yeah you just get all this like actual lived experience that you don't have to imagine and um and i think that's kind of a magical like alter ego alter life ulterior life i love how you've highlighted how important the collaborations you've had thus far in this in your career were but it does make me wonder what happens when you step on set with certain expectations and you're working with someone who maybe you know doesn't open the door to collaboration and input as much as you'd like. What do, what kind of things can you do to still make the most of a situation like that where things are not ideal? Um, work really hard, give notes, try and make it as good as it can be, try all the time. But honestly, I get like heartbroken when that happens in a way that lasts like I'm still heartbroken over a movie from like three years ago that was a disappointment. <laughs> like, gotta let it go. It's just like a job and you can move on from it. It's really something I'm trying to practice to be like, just chill out a little bit. Not everything's gonna be like great. Not every collaboration is gonna be perfect. You can just move on and live a nice life. But I, I don't know. I, I like imagine the best version of things going in and I really want, I don't know. I really, I want that. And, um, and it's hard when somebody that you've put a lot of faith in, uh, can't or won't like do the thing you thought that you had agreed to do together, but just sort of does a different thing. Um, so I don't know rue the day you signed up for the project maybe you could do that <laughs> i understand the frustration that comes with that I, whenever i get like that about things or like even interviews that don't go well and then keep me up for like nights on end after it's it always comes from a place of caring so much and if it means opening the door to those kinds of feelings like fine by me because i never want to stop caring i know be nice to just be like whatever <laughs> I, I have a sister who's like, you know, the free spirit, whatever kind of person. And I'm like the rigid, intense one. I'm always like, why can't I get, couldn't I have gotten just a little bit of that? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, jumping off of the success of Halt and Catch Fire. I'm curious, was there ever an issue with being labeled a TV star when you also wanted to make movies? Or at that point, is that concept like a thing of the past? At that point, was there no divide between TV and movies anymore? I think it was a thing of the past. I also think like Halt wasn't successful. <laughs> like people love it now and people respected it then, but nobody watched the show. It was like a lovely secret. I that is no reflection of my pride or the quality. Like I love that show. I love that people are discovering it now, but I don't think anyone would be like when it was successful. <laughs> a critical success. I should have phrased it that way. Yeah, a quiet critical success. Um, 
Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, people liked it, but it just, it really was, it kind of didn't exist. It always felt like we went to like computer camp for four months every year. And then we were like, why do they keep letting us go to computer camp? Nobody's like making the computers that we make or whatever the analogy is. It mattered in the long run. It's it's yeah, beloved. It's it. one of those things that comes up more so than any any recent show that I've watched and fell in love with. Oh, Spe- I mean, speaking of which, actually, I'm constantly hearing talk about people wanting a reunion. And I think I was reading something recently where, like Lee said, he'd be open to doing something like that. So, like, let's say they get together and they have a reunion. Where do you think Cameron would be so many years later? Well, we jumped a bunch of years in the show so it was like 92 when we ended i think where would she be now like i don't know i'm getting a little too granular with this um well i guess (laughs) i guess her and donna started phoenix based on the track record of the show and their collaborations it doesn't last long, but then there's another idea and another, I don't know. I think those five people just keep sort of like partner switching until the end of time. And they're all just like kind of horny for each other. I guess Gordon's gone, but um, you know, the rest of them just enjoy, enjoy the trade. I believe that. So I'm not sure where Cameron is. I guess that's the answer. I mean, keep keep spinning that wheel, and there. I mean, nowadays there are a lot more tools to play with, so possibilities are endless. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Blade Runner 2049. What is something that makes Denis Villeneuve a one of a kind actor's director for you? Because we're also like constantly talking about his visuals, I think more so than anything. So someone's work like that as an actor's director can kind of fall to the wayside. So what would you want people to know about him? He's, I think he's the greatest. We were just talking about Dune all day. What a beautiful movie. Um, He... It really sounds like a, like uh, everything I say is sort of the same, but um, wow, have I never seen a director who treated every single actor as the star of the movie, every single grip, electrician, camera operator, uh, set decorator, everybody is equally vital to producing the movie that he and we are making together. There's no hierarchy. There's like when the actors are on set, it's the actor's set. When the director's directing, it's his set. When camera's working, it's their set. It's filmed in absolute silence. There's no like, I mean, normally on set you do a scene, call cut, and then there's, you know, this like enormous cacophony of people getting to work. There's so much respect for what everybody is doing um, and that everybody requires the same level of respect for their job, whether they're changing sets, changing the lights or performing in a scene. And I think like that tone of, of like equality and respect and admiration for everybody's like the component that they bring to this project was like a magical um, environment to work in. It fills my heart so much to hear things like that about people I admire and love their work so much. And a, a true, like, g- genius, I think. Like, how do you have that much information in your brain to build these worlds and still, like, so much humility and, and admiration for the people that help you make them? I think what a what a, an outstanding 
type of leader that is. I'm very glad we have 2049, but I'm also very sad we didn't get more, especially because of the situation your character's in and what I think that could have teed up. So what was it like when that movie comes out and like rave reviews across the board, beloved, all this celebration, but it just didn't get to the point where you could get another movie because I imagine they had more for you to do. I never was under that impression. I'm like not being coy at all. I never was like part one of Martine. What was my character's name? Marina? No. Uh, Mariette. Mariette, sorry. Um, wasn't like, I was just like, whoa, this is some pretty weird, like, dream fulfillment that I, it's my, my favorite movie. And then I'm in the movie now. It felt very crazy. Um, also, like, the, I'm kind of, that's been a lot of the stuff I've been a part of <laughs> has not been, you know, it's not that they've been failures. I've been a part of the coolest shit, but a lot of stuff that I've done that I've loved hasn't um, been like a, an enormous sort of zeitgeisty success. And that is fine. Like I love the stuff that I've been a part of. And some stuff has, some stuff surprises you where you're like, wow, like episode three of Black Mirror is the one that's changing my like life in a weird way. Um, but most things sort of come out and I don't know, I, I, I like this sort of secrety thing about it. Uh, no, I like looking at it that way and to, to kind of weave in Station Eleven because I, I think it is a show about appreciation of art and how it can influence in ways that you would never really imagine. So, and I'm also a big believer that no matter how I feel about a movie or show, every single thing that is made has a fan out there. And I mm -hmm. always try to respect that. So even if it doesn't, you know, blow up the box office or something like that, I am a big believer that literally everything made makes an impression on someone out there. Yeah. And that is deeply valuable. Yeah. Well, that's a really beautiful attitude. And I will adopt that when I start <laughs> ripping something apart <laughs> one more question about a different film before jumping into station 11 because i've watched happiest season more times than i can count and the conversation about the ending of the movie just has not stopped there are a lot of very intense feelings about abby's decision to forgive harper i get it where do you stand on that should should harper have been forgiven after everything she did no <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She was a piece of shit. But also you saw like the worst three days of their life. Um, I think in the context of a movie, like, no, she sucks. She's like not fun. She didn't have as cool as a wardrobe as Aubrey's character. Aubrey was like hot and cool and Harper was uptight and wearing like her mom's cocktail dress. I get it. <laughs> But I also think if it was real life and not a movie, which it's not, it is a movie, you know, you have really shitty times with your partner that then you reflect on and you're like, is that you? Like, did I see the real you then? Or is the real you the rest of the time? And you kind of unpack it in this sort of slow way. Um, but no, I, yeah, she was like bad and shitty. I get it. Uh, it's hard. I'm like, my feelings are, I feel bad that people hated her so much. I feel, I was like, oh, I wish I could have 
figured out how to make it better. And I totally get the criticism, but I'm like a little part of me is like, I'm sorry. I really, I, I, yeah, she's a shitty girl. <laughs> I understand the criticism, but in all honesty, I mean it. I think in those final conversations where she apologizes, it, it's your performance in particular that tips the scale for me enough that makes the ending fulfilling and satisfying and meaningful. Thank you. I, mean Barry. I walked you right into that. So thank you very much for the compliment I teed up for you. <laughs> really have been thinking about that quite a bit. All right. Station 11. Was there anything about it that made you think, this is a good project for me to take in my career right now? Like I can either get something from, you know, the production experience or playing this particular character. Um, no. I don't know why I did it, honestly. I'm really happy I did. And it it ended up being like an incredibly meaningful experience. In all honesty, I was like so in love with Hiro Mirai's work. I just thought he was the coolest person ever. And I really wanted to work with him. And I thought Patrick was incredible. And, and we met a bunch of times and it just felt like they were people I really wanted to collaborate with and work alongside. And they, they wanted the same. And that was exciting to me. I liked their vision for the show. I thought it was beautiful, but I like, I don't know. There's something about this show where I'm, I feel, uh, and we all, I feel like a lot of us who worked on it have this sort of like mystical relationship with it of like, why was this a part of our lives in this moment? Like, what does it mean? It just happened at a time that was like a pretty emo year for me. It was a, a, an intense, like emotional experience making it. Um, yeah. It's one of the only things like that I've had that relationship to where it hasn't been like, Oh yeah, this person. Cause, cause Kristen or Kirsten, I think she, her name should be Kirsten, but I won't get into that anymore. Kirsten, um, in the book is like the, the guide for the readers. She's a great character, but when you really look at her, there's not a ton of character in it. There's a lot of like showing the world and then some like cool descriptions about her. There's like, data about her that's really interesting but in terms of her like the wholeness of her we had to figure that out like and patrick <laughs> had to write it and we had to talk about it a lot and figure out like who she was and what her actual journey was so that it was compelling outside of the book and not just as a like do you see the world after the the fall like this is what it looks like like what's her journey so I don't know. It's one of the, the only things I've ever done where I, I was kind of like on a ride with it. Speaking of the timing of it all, when when I first heard about it, when I first heard about the release, admittedly, what went through my head is given everything we've gone through, I don't know if I need a show about a pandemic in my life right now. Yeah. And then I watched it and I realized that it is exactly the show I need in my life right now. So what would you say to someone out there who's like, Nope, got enough of this in real life. Don't need it on screen. Try shooting it. <laughs> uh, no, I. the show isn't about a pandemic. Like I, it, the first episode, 
and the third episode like have elements that feel recognizable but everything else is about like how do we survive and what's important to us and and what do we hold on to and what are the most important things and i think it manages to be like really earnest and hopeful and beautiful without being kind of too cloying or embarrassing that like oh, okay like that's too sweet it's um which which emily did in her book as well i think hits this tone of like earnest hopefulness while allowing darkness and other things to be a part of that um and and our show does that as well and there's this real people searching for each other in a kind of existential sense that's pretty beautiful and and quite you know moving i find um but it just isn't about a pandemic. It's, you know, shitty timing. Believe us, like we started working on the show in 2019, shooting it in January and February of 2020, and then went on hiatus until the next year. Like we weren't making a show about a pandemic. We were making a show about um, like life after tragedy and trauma. Is there anything about the role of the project overall that felt, com I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that felt completely different, but in a way that impacted your work, because, you know, you do have that long break, you also move locations, and then, like, you have a new reality weighing on your mind as you are delivering this material. So what was the biggest difference, would you say, between, you know, who Kirsten was during the first part of production, and then mm -hmm. how you finished it out? Well, I wasn't shooting, I wasn't supposed to start shooting until May anyway, so I didn't like begin, stop, and then revisit her. Um, I think the ways that the pandemic affected are like, like endless and it's hard to put my finger on it. Like I, I am exactly the same person and also feel like <laughs> gravely affected by the last two years as everybody does. Um, and that was going to be part of it in this really intangible way. It's hard. It's not like, I thought she should, you know, uh, have an Amazon backpack. Like it's, I don't know. It's like, we all went through a pretty and are going through a pretty like fucked up amorphous trauma. Um, and that's going to influence everybody's work, whether you're like, <laughs> A journalist for Collider or, you know, an actor telling a story about a life after a pandemic, I think. I have kept you too long. If you have two more minutes, we squeeze in one extra game at the end. Great. All right. So we are going to create your own traveling symphony. And the first thing we need to do is pick a body of work for you to perform something like a playwright's work, a screenwriter, a film franchise you want to reenact, you name it. Uh, okay. Here's why I'm taking such a long pause is <laughs> because I love and have loved for a long time and think is a great companion piece for this show. Um, the Ann Washburn play, uh, Mr. Burns, a post electric play. I think that's what it's called. Um, I saw it years and years and years ago, uh, like 10 years ago and it, is all about this like post-apocalyptic first act is this post-apocalyptic scene of people sitting around a fire um trying to remember 
the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons. And they're like, like, oh, and then what happened? Oh, and then he stepped on this. No, no, no. He was under the car. And they're like piecing it together. And then the second act is like 20 years into the future. And a whole economy has been built around like selling people's memories around the the Simpsons and uh, and like piecing together whole episodes based on collective memory. And then the third act is a full like Baroque opera of the Cape Fear episode of the Simpsons. And it's this like really exquisite way that like story and entertainment becomes uh, myth and or become becomes like uh for sale and becomes uh, a part of like capital and um of the economy and then becomes this like embedded myth that's sort of indistinguishable from religion and from like the the stories we tell ourselves to survive um and i would take that play but it's a little too meta so I don't know the answer to give you. Oh my, now I need to see that play. What a fascinating concept. It's so good. It's so smart. But sorry, I don't know. The Simpsons. I choose The Simpsons. I love The Simpsons. Okay. I, I think that is actually a very good choice. I feel like in that kind of scenario, having Simpsons out there in the world is, is a positive thing. Mm-hmm. So now you need to bring a director along. You could pick any director you want to be part of your traveling symphony. Who do you pick? Mm. I'll take Sophia to call. I like that. Now we need someone for the composer conductor role. Who are you taking? Mm. What works with the Simpsons? Um, well, just because none of these things really go together so far. Uh, I'm going to say Philip Glass. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like Philip Glass is always the right answer with that kind of question. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I, I love him and, you know, it's, it could be really intense. <laughs> so now, now we need, we need a bunch of co-stars to act in this Simpsons production with Philip Glass score and Sophia Takal direction. You could take three past co-stars with you. Who do you choose? Well, I take Toby Huss, like, no question. He, um, he's homer he can be mo he can he's great with voices can do a lot um i take um god uh mary holland is so funny and so much fun to be around um and i think she could do a lot of roles and also is like a real writer would be great um and what's another one? What have I been in? I really want to check so I can remember. Um, I'll take Kristen Stewart because I just laughed all the time with her. And I think she's unbelievably talented, funny, dramatic. Like, it's great. Wait, who is Kristen playing? Oh, shit. Um, I don't know. I think she could be Bart. I don't know. Like, yeah, that's it's going to be a weird. It's going to be a weird showcase. I mean, I like weird things. So this sounds like it's right up my alley. I must let you go now. Huge, huge thank you for joining us for Collider Ladies Night. And again, big congratulations on Station Eleven and everything you've accomplished over the course of your career. Clearly, you've made a whole ton of things that I absolutely adore. So thank you and congratulations. Thank you, Perry. This was so fun and nice. And, uh, and, and that's it.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.